Uh, well, before every, every time I speak anywhere, um, I'm always just trying to tune into what God's doing. So this is my third time uh, preaching here uh, this week. So Thursday night when I was there, it was more just like there was a lot of emotion. And it, it was already kind of starting that way. And then Scott's parents were here who are like my spiritual mom and dad. They were the catalyst to me coming to Christ. So I cried a lot. And I was just like, I didn't think so. And I mean, mostly at weird times. So it's just really awkward. And then and then so I kind of braced myself in first service. I'm like, I'm probably going to cry a lot. And I was praying about like what to talk about. And I really felt like God was saying that the people here have really good hearts. And I told myself, I really feel like God's affirming you. And so I ended up not crying a lot, which threw me off because I expected to cry a lot. So it's just been a train wreck this whole time. And so this time I'm coming to speak. And, and I really feel like God was saying that your hearts are on fire. And I think that's kind of cool. And so I really felt like God was saying, take today's message as stoking your fire. So whatever we talk about, we're going to have some stories. They're going to be a little bit sad and moving and some will be triumphal. But whatever it is, today's message is really meant to meet you where you're at and to stoke your fire for the Lord, for your family, for your life, for your gifts, for your passion. So Let's put a little note there. I'm going to get back to that. So before I get into my message, um, I want to just at least talk a little bit about Scott. Um, I know where all the bodies are buried, so how could I not tell a couple stories? But I really just want to tell one or two. But really, I first want to start with, uh, I had preached here uh, before Scott was the pastor here. Uh, I'd actually preached here a couple times because I planted a church in Brentwood, a part of this denomination, Converge. And so I'd actually spoke here a few times. Uh, and then I more than lobbied for Scott to be the pastor here. I begged and I pleaded and I prayed because uh, I wanted Scott to live in LA. And a month before he got here, I moved away. I am a good friend. They just, <laughs> you can just, you just tell where this whole thing's going. I mean, just, it's just a wreck. I don't, I'll never get invited back. It's great. So, so anyway, uh, so Scott comes in and uh, goes, you know, he comes to be the senior pastor here. And I want to tell you, one of the things that Scott's really, really good at, uh, he's good at, he has an incredibly artistic eye. So if he buys a car, that's not enough. He, you know, colors the lights a certain color, get, changes the rims, all that stuff, gets the different wings and, you know, everything you could think of. You I mean, he'll be hand painting something because the factory just wouldn't do that. And so he's like doing all that stuff because in his mind, that yellow stripe that's a half, it's just, just got to be there. And so down every detail, he takes that, he applies that to his clothes, to his perfectly shaved head. Have you ever seen him not perfectly shaved head? I mean, it's like, it's literally never not perfectly shaved. And so down to every detail on this campus. Right? So to the well, uh, to the stained concrete, to every part of that vision here, it's, it's, it's who he is. And I want to tell you that when I walked on the campus, what stood out to me, having been here a long time ago and then multiple times since, was not the attention to detail of the buildings, but the attention to detail to building a family and love in this place. That's what stands out to me, is that with Scott as your leader, and with Josh, and Chris, and John, and Adrian, and Stephanie, and all the different leaders, I met all your different staff, and the great board members, and a great congregation, is that the detail that has been so prevalent in Scott's life, in terms of things like cars and buildings, is really shown up in terms of love and family here. And you guys have an amazing pastor, uh, and you're blessed to have him. So I just want to tell you that. 
I would follow him anywhere, and here's my first story, because I have followed him places. That was a mistake. Uh, so you're following the right guy. I remember we went, and uh, he was invited. He was actually honored to speak at a missions uh, center in the Bahamas, and so he invited me to come along. I don't remember if I did anything other than just tagged along, and we're there, and Scott uh, books us a snorkeling trip where they film Shark Week. That's who he is. Scott has an unhealthy lack of fear for wilderness and beasts <laughs> and sea creatures and everything living. So it's like literally like you are going to die, huh? What? Just doing it. So we're on the boat and they, everybody dives onto the, the left side, off the left side of the boat. And uh, Scott goes to the guy and he says, I'm a world-class expert snorkeler. He's not. Uh, where's the good stuff? And the guy said, well, the sharks are on that side. And Scott, literally before that guy could say, he's just like, Kagoosh. he's in the water. And, uh, and he does one of these to me, he gets some more, he's like. And I'm like, oh, this is that story where the one guy who jumped in is stupid, but the guy who followed him is stupider. So I jump in. So he starts swimming. I, I, I literally don't know how I was able to swim with my heart coming out of my chest. It's like, I'm like, and he's literally looking down and he looks up with the glee of Christmas morning. And he's like, oh, come on. It's right here. It's right here. And just, whoosh. now Scott and I are both actually very strong swimmers. Scott grew up body surfing uh, on the, in the Atlantic. When I got saved, their family took me, and I learned how to body surf. And you swim in the ocean, you just become a strong swimmer. And you'll be able to hold your breath for a long time. So Scott goes, and he just deep dives down. And I follow him into coral. Now, again, we can hold our breath a long time. And literally, we get into the coral, and I'm face-to-face -face with a nine-foot lemon shark uh, and his friends. <laughs> and Scott, I'm not joking, is trying to touch them. <laughs> Why? I, I literally, like, you're one step away from just, like, rubbing, like, barbecue sauce or chumming your body or something. <laughs> but he's trying to touch them. And so, uh, so we, after that horrific experience, we come back up. And he's like, wasn't that great? I had to use a different word. But so we get back on the boat. And then what they do is they chum the bottom. They, they ring a bell. They kind of condition like a Pavlovian. They condition sharks. They, they go two miles out. Well, literally where we're at, right next to it is, a, is like a shelf. And then the bottom of the ocean is right there. So they, they chum the water and they, they, they do some sort of a bell or something. And literally over the bottom, over the wall of the ocean floor comes hundreds of sharks. And they're just black, like black shadows. And, they, and what they do is they keep them on the bottom with chum. And then they go, they're going to dangle a rope up top. This, only in not in America can you do stuff like this. They're like, what if somebody dies? Yeah, what? What's the consequence? We're in the Bahamas. So, so they say you can go out and hang on the rope, and then you can look down at them hanging from the rope. Of course, Scott's the first one in, which means I'm going in. And so I go in there, and the guy goes to me like this, points at his eyes, and then points like this. And I'm thinking, why is he pointing over here? The sharks are down here. And I look up, and then it just a gigantic shark just goes right by all of us to Scott's glee. So... 
So then we get out and they roll the chum up and then and they frenzy. So hundreds of sharks are frenzying slowly up to the top of the surface. He get all the way to the surface and they are literally frenzying over the chum. True story. Scott is just like this. He's just like. <laughs> the guy grabs his hand. What are you doing? He's like, I just want to touch it. Ah. Oh, the danger. Love it. That's your pastor. So, uh, but before all that stuff, he was always like that. And we, we've been friends since he was 14 and I was 15. Uh, we met in Chicago. Um, and he was playing basketball at the Melrose Park Rec Center. And what's fun is that I'm going to just tell you a little bit of our story here because it really does fit into what we're doing today. We're in continuing our Ruth series. And the Ruth series is the best is yet to come. And then today in Ruth chapter 3, we're going to look at Boaz entering into the scene of Ruth's life as a kinsman redeemer, the Gaal, the word redeemer in here. And so we see the entrance of Boaz into our life as an opportunity for God to use someone to redeem her circumstance. And so as I was thinking through the title of the series, The Best is Yet to Come, and then this idea of Redeemer really kind of is woven into mine and Scott's story, mainly as Scott as the leader and I as the follower. That literally, uh, he's, uh, you know, literally leading me as a young man to Jesus. That literally when I met Scott when we were playing basketball, it was the beginning of something. And it was the beginning of something for my life that the best was yet to come. That seven years from that day, I was going to meet Jesus, and I was going to meet a redeemer, and he was going to redeem my life and redeem so much broken, literally break strongholds, break generational curses over my family of all my family just going down one route. But that moment of meeting Scott started me on a new road that was going to bring Jesus into my life, and I was going to meet the redeemer. And the one point you're going to hear me say a bunch of times here today is that you're going to be able to, the fire that I'm stoking in this group today is peace, stillness. Why? Because you have a redeemer. So the fire that I want you to experience is not more winding you up and go getting it and killing it and being even better than you are right now, but the ability to let go, to receive peace, to be still because we have a redeemer. And he's not only redeemed our eternity, he can redeem every moment in our life. Peace. Still, we have a redeemer. So when I was thinking through those concepts, I was thinking about meeting Scott. And uh, so I meet Scott at the Melrose Park Rec Center. A little bit of my context is my uncle was the crime boss of Las Vegas and was murdered for his position. My other uncle was a syndicate guy and a crime boss in Chicago. Uh, and you know, the funny part is it wasn't until I was 30 that I thought that was weird. Up until then, I'm like, what? Like, I didn't even think, when I tell my testimony, I never mentioned that. It was that normal to me. It wasn't until later, I'm like, oh, I guess that's kind of significant, isn't it? And so I come from a, a, a mob crime family. And so I meet Scott in an all-Italian community, Melrose Park, uh, Illinois, is completely Italian. And it was the four years that Scott was Italian. He just, he just embodied it. When Scott was 15, not joking and not even poking at him, he had the thickest, luscious hair that just went back so nicely with his Z Cavaricis his Zodiac slip-ons, and his black Mustang GT. He would get out in a wonderful trench coat, 
and he was more Italian than Italians. <laughs> Called everybody Bo and Mo. Hey, Bo. Hey, Mo. Got me convinced that I'm Italian. So anyway, so this is me coming in. I meet this kid, and my high school that I went to was back-to-back state champions, uh, and literally I was a beginning basketball player, and I wasn't going to make that team. And so I, I meet Scott, uh, and he's like, well, I have a church league team you could play on. And I'm like, well, what's the requirement? He goes, you just have to go to youth group. I said, well, I can tolerate anything for an hour, so I will go and tolerate that. And that began a journey, and he's like, come meet my family. And uh, he's like, just so you know, my, my parents are religious. And he probably didn't say that word, but I heard that. And I remember it's the 80s. I look like Johnny Depp from 21 Jump Street at the time. My hair is shaved all the way around the side, and I got a ponytail kind of coming out the back here. Today, it w- you wouldn't even blink at it. In the Midwest, I might as well have had three heads. It was just like, what is this kid doing? And so I just think I want to be on this basketball team, but I don't want to be, I don't want, I know his parents aren't going to like me. I'm a bad kid. I know it. I'm kind of a thug and I got weird hair. So I just kind of go, all right, I'm just going to keep my head down. Scott, just, I'll just slip in. Just, you know, let me just get around. I'll get to your room and I don't even want to talk to anybody. He goes, yeah, no problem. No problem. Door opens up. He's like, hi mom. Joe's got a ponytail. We, that's not the plan we agreed upon. <laughs> and his mom says something that you're going to laugh at, but actually touched my heart at 15 in the first meeting. She said, George Washington has a ponytail. <laughs> <laughs> not joking. First time in my life somebody had ever associated anything good with me. So even as I talk about it, it touches my heart. Because she was trying to think, What's something good I could say about this kid? And it really began this journey that literally just the keggles in my life. Before I even knew Jesus, my life was getting better. Scott and I became good friends, and eventually seven years later, I gave my life to Christ. I met my Redeemer, Jesus. And literally from that day to this, I become a person who's not only seen the highs of being with God and all that he can do, but also in the lows, experiencing peace and stillness and knowing he's God. So that's what we're going to talk about. Does that sound good? All right, cool. So let's go to uh, Ruth chapter 3. And before I kind of dive into Ruth chapter 3, you know, because we're going to, the one thing I'm just going to keep saying over and over again, for those type A's who want to, are hoping I'll get to the end of the message and know what it's all about, I don't preach it like that. I actually tell you what it's all about in the beginning so you can just relax a little bit, you know, just kind of enjoy this. And so my one point I'm going to make over and over again is peace, be still, there's a redeemer. And when I say there's a redeemer, I want you to realize you've trusted Jesus to redeem your eternity Trust that he can redeem all things in your life. Amen? So that's what I want you to know. I want you to start walking in the present reality of a redeemer. And so uh, when I thought about that one topic, I felt like God gave me that one phrase. I thought of a very specific story where I experienced some really epic peace uh, through Jesus. I just, moved to, I just moved from Chicago to LA to plant a church in Brentwood. And so I plant this church in Brentwood. Uh, when I left Chicago, it was December 30th, 2007, and it was about to begin one of the worst winters Chicago experienced. Up until literally till this last year, where Chicago experienced 50 below 
uh, weather this year. I don't know if you knew that. There was a day this year that Chicago was colder than Mount Everest. And so it was pretty horrible. But up until then, that was like one of the worst winters. Uh, so we drive, we get to LA. Uh, my house was being sold. It hadn't sold yet. They said, don't worry about it. Just move to LA, you know, Washington Mutual. Uh, have, how many of you ever heard of Washington Mutual? Well, that because they're out of business now, but you still at least know who they are. They handled this, 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 uh, this uh, situation in what is fitting for somebody to go out of business. So anyway, so they um, said, don't worry about it. We got it. And they said, we'll close while you're in LA. All good. So month one goes by. Washington Mutual says, we, we, need, some other, we need to do some other things. And we moved it. Anybody who's ever closed down a house, you don't need to move it. It's not that hard. So the next month goes, Washington Mutual moves it again. Next month goes, Washington Mutual goes and moves it again. Just so you know, Chicago's winter isn't three months long. It's pretty much winter to summer. So that horrible winter is just lasting. Four or five months pass. They kept moving it, and I get a phone call. I'm like, oh, finally, the house sold. I get the phone call, and they said, Joe, we got some bad news. So what are you talking about? They said, uh, a pipe uh, in the second floor bathroom of your home froze and then burst. And since you weren't living there, no one knew it. And we didn't find it till 300,000 gallons of water had ripped through your home, completely destroying it. We have some worse news. As Washington Mutual kept changing the date, somewhere along the lines, your uh, insurance didn't get renewed. And it's a total loss. It's a total loss. And I'm one of those guys that can lose perspective pretty easily. You know, you step on a kid's toy, going through the living room after you get home from work, and you're like, why are there toys on the floor? And my wife's like, because they're two and three years old. It's where toys are. And so, so I have no perspective, lose my mind. But in this moment, I had clarity. I had a peace and a stillness that can only be attributed to Jesus. And for some reason, I just had this one weird thought. And I'm not even saying God gave it to me. I just had this thought. And my thought was, Satan came for my kids and God gave him my house. And I'm okay with it. And I had a peace and a stillness. And it really felt in my heart that God too would redeem this situation. Without going into all of it, he did. That too was redeemed. Not just my eternity. He redeemed the circumstance of my life and around my house and everything. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to stoke that fire of peace and stillness and redemption. So we're in Ruth chapter 3. And just just briefly, so you guys, I listened to Pastor Scott's uh, sermon on it, Ruth chapter 1, I need to chapter 2. Very, I, I love his preaching. It's very, very good. And, uh, and he's way smarter than I am. I didn't ever see him wear these glasses, these, you know, some people call them cheaters. I call these making up for hand tattoos. So like makes you... Well, the hand tattoo seemed like a bad decision, but he's wearing glasses. Maybe he's smart. (laughs) Wait, now I see the skinny jeans. I'm confused. This is just a mess. So, so anyway, um, so uh, just a brief summary. The story of Ruth is this, is that her mother-in-law, Naomi, has two sons, uh, Ruth is married to one. Orpah is married to the other. They die. And Naomi's like, well, I have no reason to stay here anymore. I, you guys, these two ladies are married, her daughter-in-laws. And she's like, I'm going to go back to Israel to my people. And Orpah's like, cool, peace out. I'm going to go to my people. But Ruth is like, no, Naomi, I love you. I'm, 
I may I die if I don't come with you. Your God will be my God and your people, my people, that very famous saying. And so she goes with Naomi back to Israel. And then the last chapter, we see Boaz uh, enter into the picture and we see kindness and love and protection towards Ruth from Boaz, who's a successful businessman at that time. So this is where we pick up. So she'd uh, follow behind the, uh, the, she'd follow behind and was able to glean some grain and stuff. Boaz allowed her to pick up grain and bring it back to her and Naomi. Uh, and now we're going to pick up with that story where Naomi's talking to her daughter-in-law, Ruth. It says, one day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. So my style of preaching is going to be this. So exegesis literally means to draw out. So you got to go into the original context and then you draw out of it. From an exegetical standpoint, you move to a hermeneutical perspective, which is from there, then you say, so exegete is draw out, then and there. Hermeneutics is here and now, apply. So I'm going to tell you Ruth's story, but I'm going to apply it to your story. So we're going to talk about her redemption story, but really as a catalyst to talk about your redemption story. Amen? So first one here, we see this. When I, when I read scripture, I always like looking at the original languages. And so the word that jumped out to me when I was praying about what God wants me to say uh, was the word yatav, which means well-provided for. And so, uh, so we have this yatav, and the context is Ruth's mother-in-law, the scripture tells us the actual relationship is mother-in-law, no blood-related, but the emotional relationship from Naomi to Ruth is daughter. That's a good distinction. So there's this technically, you know, you are my mother-in-law, but Naomi's like, but you're a daughter and I love you. And we've seen this love blossom between these two people. And I want to tell you that in your story is that you are God's kid. Naomi loves this daughter and cares about her provision. I promise you, God is our father and he cares about your provision. He really does. And you know, I know this. It's actually one of the seven names of God, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. Today, over and over again, I'm going to point you at God's character. And I'm not going to give you details of the how he provides, the why he provides, the when he provides. I'm going to provide for you the who provides. And whatever you're facing right now, whether you're in a financial situation or a relational situation or vocational or whatever it might be, maybe you have some dreams, whatever it might be that's going on in your life, you need to approach God saying, I know you provide. So that's not on the table. The when, the where, the how, you can ask that. I don't know what's happening. But I know you are Jehovah Jireh. And I know that you call yourself father. God could have said any title he wanted. When we said, God, who are you? He says, he could have said, I'm general, I'm king, I'm all these different things. But Jesus says, God says he's father, stating there's a relational dynamic from him to you. And when you talk to God, he's literally creating a pathway. How should I relate to you as father? Then Jesus says, you're born into the family. Then Romans 8 says you're adopted into the family. Then Romans 11 tells you that you're married into the family. You're the bride of Christ. So literally God says I'm father and all of scripture affirms your identity as sons and daughters. So now Jehovah Jireh isn't just the God who provides. He's your father who provides, right? So this is what we have to do. We have to, if we're going to literally 
understand the idea of redemption, not just in eternity, but in our lives, that if we're going to believe God can redeem, that we can have a peace and a stillness, we need to know that when we seek first the kingdom, all these other things will be added unto us. I take scripture for what it actually says. Uh, The best way I've seen, not the only way, the best way I've seen God provide is you literally walking in your purpose and call and gifts. That's simple. So if you want to see, if you are looking to your father, the investor, and you want him to back your project, the best way to get him to back your project is to walk in the gifts he gave you, to walk in the talents he gave you, to walk in the purpose and call he gave you and say, hey, God, I'm doing the thing you asked. Will you fund this? Will you provide? And I want to tell you one other thing. That doesn't mean it has to be your job. You might tent make. Maybe you're an actor or a singer, or maybe you're an artist or do something else. You know, that's what you feel like your purpose and call is, but you don't make any money doing it. That's okay. Money doesn't affirm God's call in your life. Now that I'm getting paid, it's from God. Nope. God's like, I gave you this gift. Go and use it. Go and do it. So if you need to work somewhere, make sure wherever you're working, you're still leaving a space for your purpose and call, teaching, preaching, whether it's more spiritual evangelism, whatever it is. And I believe in that place, you could say, God, provide. Fund this thing you started in me. You who began a good work in me, bring it to completion and provide through the whole journey. So I was, uh, so I met Scott. I had a ninth grade education. He was smart and continued on past that. He's like, you know what? Ninth grade doesn't seem like enough. So he went and got a high school diploma and a college degree and a master's degree and all that. Him and his, both his beautiful wife did as well. So I thought, nope, I've got a ninth grade education. I'm done. I'm good. So uh, when I got saved, I thought, you know what? I was actually a professional rapper at the time I got saved. I know what you're thinking. You looked at me and thought, rapper. <laughs> I get it all the time. So, so anyway, i a professional rapper, and I felt called to leave that and actually uh, become a pastor. And I felt called to be a pastor at the time when I was still calling it a pasture. So I was telling people that I want to someday become a field that cattle graze upon. And I need a degree to become such a field. And so, so I decided I should go back and get a GED. And Scott's sister, Kathleen, started coaching me up to get a GED. And I got a GED. And I scored high enough on the GED that I got into Trinity. I really expected Josh to yell when I said Trinity. Oh, there it is. So Josh also went to Trinity as well, and so did Chris Kerner for a little bit. And so I uh, got into Trinity, and the government gave me all the money they could, which was just enough to pay my bills, but not enough for extra food for like money, and definitely not enough money for books. It's my first day at chapel. I don't know anybody. I'm sitting by myself, one or two rows from the front, and I remember starting to cry, and I remember saying to God, God, I... I'm the, at the place you told me to go to. I'm, we're walking in my purpose and call. I left everything. I don't know how I'm going to pay for my books. Um, I don't know what to do. And I just pray that you'd provide. This is a true story, by the way. A white envelope started making its way down the aisle. Gets to me. I pass to the next person. And the person next to me said, no, they said it's for you. Flip it over, and I open it up, and it's filled with money. And it's literally enough money to pay for everything I needed for that semester. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is the Lord 
who provides. He can redeem every situation you're facing. If he can take care of your eternity, he can take care of your life. And knowing that, peace, be still. So the next verse is this. I've done this every single time I've preached here. Uh, I'm always going long, so I have, to, I have to end up trying to cut it short. But I, I pretty much write sermons like Kevin Costner writes movies. And, uh, and then I edit like him as well. He's like, nope, it's all good. We filmed 10 hours. It's a 10-hour movie. <laughs> that's what we're doing. So I, I kind of do the same thing. And uh, all that's left to decide is at the end, you'll have to say, was that Bull Durham or Waterworld? So that's, that's what's going on. So uh, verse 2 says this, Now Boaz, with uh, whose women you've worked, remember Naomi's talking to Ruth right now, uh, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go, over, go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So a couple little notes here. So the basic part of the story is pretty obvious right there. She goes and approaches them, and she does some sort of a behavior that really doesn't translate to us. It's, it's really, you're like, this doesn't make any sense, what, what happened there. And so whenever I get to things in the Hebrew versus the Greek, I really like to study uh, rabbis, because they've been looking at this passage for thousands of years longer than even Christians have been looking at it. And so I want to tell you, I studied a bunch of rabbis, and I can tell you right now, 100%, nobody knows what it means. There's <laughs> not, <laughs> there not a unanimous opinion on this. Here's what I can tell you is that it's, it's, it's innocent. It really is. Culturally, it's an innocent gesture, and, and mainly for one reason, and it's simply this, is that in the immediate context, Boaz is a very righteous person we saw in the chapter before. But what's going on here, and I'll explain to the guardian redeemer, is that what's happening is Ruth is able to marry somebody related to Naomi, right? She's allowed to do that, a kinsman redeemer, and Boaz realizes he's not the next in line to marry her. And so whatever is happening there, Boaz is like, we cannot uh, do anything at all. Like there has to be all innocence with us until we determine who is going to redeem you, who is going to marry you. So the noble man that he is, he wanted to make sure that he had protected the innocence and the integrity of Ruth for whoever was going to marry her, whether it was him or someone else. So whatever's happening, it's innocent. Uh, the second thing is, uh, the phrase translated in the NIV is guardian redeemer. And the word here is the ga'al. It just means redeemer. The guardian part is implied or the kinsman part is implied by the context in which it's being put on here. And so guardian redeemer, I want to tell you right now that I love taking my year and a half of Koine Greek and critiquing the 300 Hebrew scholars who translated this. So I'm literally zero qualified, but with that said, let's do it anyway. 
Guardian Redeemer is a hot garbage translation. It is so off, I can't even tell you. And here's why. Because it's so narrow. What they did is they took an implication of the behavior of this person and they applied it immediately to this context. The idea that Boaz would come in and guard Ruth. But that's not what this word means. The kinsman redeemer, the Gaal, has multiple roles. So like if you are an uh, Israelite and someone murders you, the Gaal, the guardian redeemer, becomes the avenger of blood. And they seek restitution on your behalf. If you sell yourself into slavery and you have no money, the Gaal, the redeemer, comes and they, they get you out of the slavery you're in. Or if you marry somebody and you're a guy and you die and your wife never had children, your next closest relative, your kinsman redeemer, they redeem the situation by marrying your spouse. They have a child. The firstborn son is named after you so that your name is not blotted out of Israel. The importance of the Gaal is not guardianship. It's the idea of kinsmanship. It's the idea that we're family and that we love each other and we redeem the situations that the rest of our family find themselves in. Sometimes a fault of their own, sometimes not. Boy, who does that sound like? Jesus is our Gaal. He is our redeemer. And he redeems situations that sometimes are our fault and sometimes are not. And so for us, we need to go into these situations knowing that we're going to make choices that are going to lead to situations that we didn't intend. And we're going to make choices, poor choices, that are going to lead us to bad situations. And I can't tell you that God will or won't, when or how, but I can tell you knowing he is our redeemer. And you could go to him and say, God, will you redeem this situation? I know a lot of us think God will redeem only the things that are innocent. Do you know what salvation is? Salvation is redemption that's not innocent. It's because we made some seriously jacked things up. And he comes and redeems. He is still that person. He still will redeem things that you've jacked up. And so you pray and ask him to. I was uh, a part of a documentary. Uh, I'm going to tell a couple more stories here, and then I'm going to wrap it up. I was a part of a documentary for History Channel that I hosted and um, called The Jesus Strand. And I did this documentary, and I was the only person on uh, the documentary that was a person of faith. And everybody else was an atheist. And again, I don't beat History Channel up for that. I'm glad they want to do a documentary on Jesus. They're only doing what they know. They can only know what they know. And in fact, they actually picked me to host because I was the person who actually believed. But it was a little more hilarious. Like, this guy actually believes this. Like, I was crazy. And so I had to think about it. Like, I do believe a guy rose from the dead. Okay, I get it. This is different. And so... uh, I believe God's spirit lives in me. Like we just start kind of going objective for the, how the rest of the world sees it. I get it. And so we go and it's going really well. And I'm really centering my focus of the documentary on loving people behind the scenes, knowing their name, knowing their kid's name, knowing what they love, who they are, listening. I really thought if God was going to do something great with this documentary, that it was going to start with inviting him into the process, not just the result. So I started loving people and listening and having good conversations about God. Going really well, actually. He's like, this is awesome. So we go, at this one point of the documentary, we have to go and look at the James Ossuary, which is uh, called a bone box. And it's supposed to be the brother of Jesus. And they're trying to get DNA off James's bones. So we go there. And I'm excited to talk to the expert about it. When we get there, it's not about the James Ossuary at all. 
It's about the Talpia tomb, which was a tomb that had claimed to be the actual burial ground of Jesus with his bones and his entire family. I, hadn't done, I knew about it, but I hadn't done any prep work to be able to talk intelligently about it. And I get there, and the expert there is hostile and aggressive, and him and I debate, and he owns me. He just absolutely crushes me to the point in which the rest of the crew afterwards was like, I don't think I believe the Bible. I literally was devastated. I went to my hotel that night, and I cried. And I was like, I'd let God down. I'd let my church down. I'd let everybody I know down. It's me on national TV, and I just wept. I was so defeated. I felt like such a failure. And even though when I got back into the bus, I looked up and took me five minutes to figure out why everything that guy was saying was wrong, I was like, I need to tell him right now. And God's like, nope, now's not the time. Just let it lie. So I went to my room and I wept. And uh, the next day, we we're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. So we were filming at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. And we're there, and I'm obviously not in great spirits. And uh, I start talking about the resurrection, which is an expertise of mine. And so I start talking about it in detail, what Jesus went through. My co-host, who I really loved, British guy, openly atheist, uh, doctor from uh, Oxford University, a geneticist. And he's been so stoic. And we had these very cerebral conversations uh, to where he's like, hmm, hmm, hmm. But after the Talpia tomb incident, he was just like, yeah, everything Joe's saying is trash. And so... Uh, so we're there, and I'm talking about the resurrection, and his eyes start to well up. And he's, like, fighting it back. And he's kind of like, why is this happening? I'm British. You know, like, <laughs> this doesn't make sense. So he's he, assuming something was wrong with him. He just, you know, resisted it. And all of a sudden, they, tears just started to gush, and he started to weep as he listened to a blow-by-blow description of what Jesus went through when he was crucified to the point where he was crying so hard that he reached over to me and just embraced me. And it literally felt like God was saying to me in that moment, you were trying to win his head. I was trying to win his heart. And uh, I went back to my room that night and I prayed. And I really felt like God was telling, I really felt like I kind of had this little phrase in my head, I'd been knocked off my horse. And from the ground looking up, I saw God win. I saw God win. The next day, uh, we're filming somewhere else, and a space was opened where they said, Joe, would you like to reply to the Telpia tomb conversation? I said, oh my gosh, yes. God redeemed all of it, redeemed every bit of it. I can't tell you the how or the whys or the whens. I can just tell you the who. He's our redeemer. I don't know what you're facing. Peace, still. All right, so... Since my time is done, I'm going to read through the rest of the passage, make a couple comments, and I'll end with a story. All of you type A people, McDonald's isn't going anywhere. Slow down. I'm in L.A., sorry. Uh, Corner Kitchen isn't going anywhere. Slow down. All right, so let me read the rest of this. So it says... um, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This is Boaz speaking to Ruth. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier, referring back to last chapter. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. 
All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. The word know here in Hebrew is yada. So if you think about a Yiddish version of this in the Seinfeld episode, yada, 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 you know, you know, you know. And so this is kind of that yada, you know. And so she had this great reputation. Uh, her character had spread really fast. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning if he wants to do his duty as your kinsman redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. Very significant. Boaz makes a promise. And actually the phrase, as surely as I will do it, is actually the word ga'al. Again, literally redeem. So he literally says, if the other guy won't do it, I will redeem you. I will redeem your circumstance. He made a promise. How many of you know that God's not a promise maker? God's a promise keeper. He's a promise fulfiller. And he's promising here, Boaz, to redeem. I promise God wants to redeem your situation. So he says, so she lay at his feet until morning, but God got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured it into six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How'd it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. I'll end with this point in this story. One of the things we need to realize is that we're asking God to redeem and we're looking for peace and we're looking for stillness, we need to realize that God does not rest when we're in turmoil. I know a lot of us think that God's like, you know, well, he's not doing anything. I promise you may not know the how or the why or the when, but God is a good father. And over and over again in scripture, we can see God's plan being fulfilled in people's lives. He's not literally off golfing. He's literally at work in your life, whether you can see it or not, looking to redeem your circumstance, whether that's going to be in heaven or now, right? Whether it's an eternal redemption or a current redemption, God is at work and you can have peace and stillness. And I'll close with this story. Because when I heard this story about, when I thought about God not resting, it made me think of a, a story I heard a few years ago. There was an earthquake in a third world country and a boy and his class were in their classroom, and the building was poorly made, not earthquake-proof, and it collapsed on top of the entire classroom. The father heard uh, that the building had collapsed, and he ran there, and he was looking for his son, Antonio. And so he started to remove debris, and he would yell, Antonio, every couple pieces. Take a couple pieces off. Antonio! Take a couple pieces off. Antonio! He's surrounded by all the disaster relief workers, comes back the second day, early as can be, starts removing debris. Antonio comes back the third day. Disaster relief workers, given up, it's over. Whoever could be saved was saved. So from morning to night, the father screamed, Antonio. Fourth day, comes back, removing debris early. Antonio. He moved one piece of debris, yelled, Antonio, and he heard faintly, Papa, when the building collapsed, it created a little bit of a cave, and Antonio and all the kids were safe in that one little pocket there. He pulled more of the pieces away. Antonio, Papa, comes out, pulls it out. The son embraces him, and he said, he said, I, 
I knew we were going to be okay. I told all the kids, I kept them calm, Papa. I said, don't be afraid. My Papa will not rest until he knows that I'm okay. I told him that you'd always come for me. God's a good father, and he'll always come for you. He'll always come for you. Peace, be still. We have a redeemer. Let's pray. God, you are good, and we love you. I know even you'll, you'll redeem every moment in eternity. I know that we're going to come to heaven. I know we're going to be, stand before you that the best is yet to come and that you are a redeemer. But now in our lives, even before heaven, we ask as you pray, Jesus, bring heaven to earth and redeem our circumstances now. Redeem the situations people are facing right now at this moment, God. Let them have peace and a stillness, trusting your how, your whys, and your whens. I know there are people sitting here right now, and if that's a prayer you need to pray, go ahead and pray. Say, God, redeem my situation. I believe you. You're Jehovah Jireh. You provide. But there's another group of you that say, I don't know that peace. I don't know that stillness. I don't know that redeemer. And if that's you, I'm going to pray a 90-second prayer right now. If you would follow along after me, receive Jesus as your Savior, and let peace and stillness and redemption enter your life right now. So just either out loud or in your head, say this simple prayer. Say, God, I admit it. I've sinned. I've made mistakes. It's obvious. Say, God, forgive me. And he does. Say, God, I believe. I believe that you died on a cross to pay for those sins. Say, God, I receive. And this is the end part of it. Say, I receive Jesus as my Savior. That's the forgiver of my sins. Say, I receive Jesus as my Lord. That's the leader of my life. And the last part, I receive the Holy Spirit. Take up dwelling inside of me, fulfilling a promise knowing that God will never leave me and never forsake me. I'm not alone. God, thank you for all the people that are here and those who prayed either of these prayers. Bless them in Jesus' name. Well, what a great morning of worship of hearing God's word, the story of redemption. Some of you made decisions today to trust Christ with your life. Others have acknowledged the fact that, yes, Christ is indeed in my life. If any of you would like to talk about that decision today, you'd like to be prayed for, or just uh, come and greet uh, Pastor Joe or Scott or others will be up here uh, to pray with you and, and talk about what God's doing in your life. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week. God bless.